0: Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for this time to come together to praise you, to hear from your word, um, to worship you together. We pray that you would uh, bless the words of my lips and help us all to hear your word speaking to us and cutting to our hearts and helping us to grow closer to you and more like your son. We believe in the Holy Spirit and trust in your presence here with us and pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. So I see a lot of faces I recognize and some that I don't. It is wonderful to be back. For those who don't know, uh, Kelsey and I were here for just over two months last summer. Uh, Right before Jim came, we were the bridge, um, and now you guys are on solid ground. So we're happy to, uh, to do that. It's a wonderful time. We are very pleased to be back. We've heard great things about Emmanuel in the intervening time, heard that it's been a wonderful year for you guys. It's been a wonderful year for us, too. We're expecting again, so we've got a baby girl on the way. Um, and uh, God's been really good to us in our careers and our families, so it's just been, it's been great, and it is wonderful to be back here with you today. Uh, I'm here because Jim is defending his, his dissertation, or has defended his dissertation, as some of you know. He did it on Friday. It went great, So, uh, as I just heard from Amber, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, his dissertation is on Jonathan Edwards, as you guys probably know better than I do. Hopefully he talks about Edwards all the time because um, Edwards is fantastic, so I'm really excited to read it. I think it's, he, he talked to me a little bit about it, it sounds really fantastic. Um, Jim, when he invited me, he told me I could preach on whatever I wanted to, so I prayed about it, and I thought about it, and I decided that I wanted to talk to you guys about ambition, um, because ambition is something that I'm, I'm really interested in, and I also think it's something that there can be a little bit of a misconception in the church about. It's an understandable misconception, and I think it has to do with the relationship between ambition and humility. Because obviously we know that humility is an extremely important virtue in Christianity. It's not an important virtue in a lot of other ways of thinking about the world. Um, if you went to ancient Greeks or ancient Romans in the period right before you know, the, the church came into existence, uh, right before Jesus' birth, and told them that you were about to found a new religion based on humility unless they were really familiar with Judaism, they would have thought you were crazy because it's certainly not something that was held up as one of the virtues. It was, in general, thought of being something that was was bad, that uh, people who um, were weak or didn't have much, um, a a characteristic of that type of person. And so we think, well, if we're meant to be humble, then we're probably not meant to be ambitious. But that's a misconception, I think. Um, And so I want to talk about ambition a little bit. uh, And... Part of what I want us to to grasp is that Christians actually are, to be a Christian is to be shockingly ambitious. And that ambition that comes with being a Christian should filter throughout your whole life and reshape your whole life and guide how you live and what you do. Um, So we're going to get into that. And first I want to tell a story that I always think of when I think about ambition. Um, Kelsey and I were down in Naples several years ago and we got my granddad, who wasn't a Christian, to come out and go to church with us. And we went to this nice church, um, and we are you know, sitting in the, over on the left, you know, sort of in the middle. And we were looking up, and I, this, there was a guy, sort of an older man, sitting a few rows in front of me. And he kept looking around, and he had a really distinctive face. And I was like, I really feel like I recognize that guy. I'm not sure who he is. I couldn't think maybe he was like an old professor or someone I'd seen on TV. I just couldn't figure out who it was. And then he, I got a really good look at him, and I was like, all right that's either Chuck Colson or somebody who looks exactly like Chuck Colson. And if you know what Chuck Colson looks like, there really aren't that many people who would look exactly like Chuck Colson. So I went up to him afterward and um, introduced myself, and we got to talk to him, and he was like, so kind and humble and gracious. And it's just really startling to sit there and think about who he was sitting there in this lovely church with his children and grandchildren around him and contrast that to who he was when he was saying that he would... Um, walk over his own grandmother to get Nixon elected and called himself Nixon's hatchet man and, you know, he's so ambitious to do whatever he could to advance these political goals that he ends up in jail. And It's like, man, isn't there like a... You, so maybe you could think, all right, well, that story is about how ambition leads you astray and so you get punished for it and you end up chastened and less ambitious. But that's actually not Chuck Colson's story at all because he goes to prison, becomes a Christian, leaves prison, founds Prison Fellowship, uh, which is this immense ministry that does incredible things. You should look it up and learn about it if you don't already know about it. Writes tons of books, has this incredible career that he's far more famous for now than the stuff that he got in trouble for originally. And so what we see in in Chuck Colson's life is actually these two sides of ambition. How ambition can be a really bad thing, ambition can be a good thing. Ambition can be a vice, ambition can be a virtue. So we're going to talk about how that happens. I mean, What do we do with our ambitions? How do we turn them from vices into virtues? And to do that, um, we're going to look at a psalm that is about ambition. It's a psalm that actually looks back on David's ambition, uh, the greatest king in, in Israel's history, one of his greatest ambitions. Let's look back at the beginning of that psalm, Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, and so David was, was nothing. He was nobody. He was the last son of a, someone who had no particular position. And uh, God chooses him, anoints him, leads him through all these hardships, and he finally ends up being king. So we're remembering all these hardships. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So this is David um, after he's finally given rest from his enemies. He's finally established in his own city, in his own palace. He's secure. He's stopped all of the wild fighting that's been going on. And he sits there and he thinks, um, you know, I have a palace, but the Ark of the Covenant, which is um, the, the place where God's presence resides with ancient Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is still in this tabernacle, which you can see instructions for back in Exodus. It's about 400 years old at this point. Now, I imagine they were doing upkeep, but come on. I mean, it's a 400-year-old tent, right? So, and this is God's presence with his people. It, it, so David's thinking, I've got to build a temple. I want to be the one, the, really the first one in history to build a temple for the God of the universe on earth with his people. And you can see the talk about the ark in uh, 6 to 8. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it on the fields of Jar. It is the Ark of the Covenant. Um. And so here David is thinking about this. And what does he do? We don't see it in this psalm, but in 2 Samuel 7, where you get this story recounted, what David, does, what David does with his ambition is he tells the prophet, tells the prophet of God that this is what he wants to do before he goes off and pursues it. And that's interesting. You would think, what could be more innocent than this, right? What could be more innocent than building a temple for God? How could that not be a good idea? It seems to make perfect logical sense, but it's actually really a good example for us that David does bring his, um, his ambition before God. And it's interesting that God actually denies it. He, doesn't, he tells David not to build the temple, and there, there are reasons for that, that we don't need to get into right at this moment. Um, but it's very important that David brings his ambition to God, and it's actually really important that we bring our ambitions to God because our ambitions tend to be curved. We seem our ambitions seem like they're pointing at some grand and great thing, but they end up kind of curving back around and really being about ourselves, about our own glory, about making ourselves look good, about our own greatness, on our own um, comfort. It's like the televangelist who says, give generously and God will make you rich. And what he means is, give generously and God will make me rich, or I remember um, several years ago there was a, a political campaign and they asked it was a debate and they asked the politicians you know tell us one of your what your greatest weakness is and one of the politicians stood up and said you know I just want to help people too much and it was like yeah that that curves back around right um, so we need to straighten our ambitions we need God to straighten our ambitions so that. They don't seem like they're about great things and end up being about um, selfishness. Um, there's actually, a, I heard a story that I thought was pretty interesting about how uh, that, that sort of captures, I think, how selfish ambitions can can hurt us even when they're fulfilled. And you can probably think of examples of this yourself. Think of all the people who, you know, end up really successful and then you hear about how they're miserable, or someone achieves their greatest goals and then. It, it feels empty. And so I heard a, um, a story about an Italian millionaire that had passed away just a few years ago. This woman left her $13 million estate to her cat. The cat's name was Tommaso. And yet it's actually, it's a real rags to riches story because Tommaso was a stray. <laughs> so now he's like living in luxury, 13 million, worth 13 million. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know how he ended up managing the estate. should look back into that. But you can just imagine this woman who has all the money you could possibly imagine, can do absolutely anything, and she's living alone in this mansion with a stray cat. I mean, she would have been better off poor. Then at least she would have needed people. There was a phrase that the early church used uh, to describe sin. In in se. In curvatus in se, it means that we curve in on ourselves. In the service of self, our desires boomerang. We turn away from God, we turn toward ourselves, and in our desire to be great, we actually shrink ourselves. And I think about that, and I imagine this millionaire sitting alone in her mansion with her cat, and if, if you saw it from the outside, it would seem great and wonderful, and if you you saw her at a restaurant, you would... You know, they would have brought in security and close, You know, made sure it, it would it just see, would seem glamorous, and then you see the inside, and it's it's lonely and miserable, and it's, it, it's it's shrinking and claustrophobic, and it's become small. So David's ambition wasn't necessarily wrong. We don't have any reason to think that it was wrong. You can look at that at Second Samuel seven, and some people have suggested that maybe David is thinking that he's entering into a sort of tit-for-tat relationship with God, you blessed me, now I'm going to do something for you, and sort of thinking about things in the wrong way. It's possible. Um, But it's also possible that David's ambition was perfectly godly, and God denied it anyway. And God said that, no, your son is the one who's going um, going to build the temple. But what we see with David is that if selfish ambition can hurt us, even when it's fulfilled, godly ambition will help us even when it isn't fulfilled. Because look at what happens in um, verse 11. We get God's response to David. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall forever sit on your throne. And so David has this ambition to build God's house. God says no to that, but instead promises to build David's house. So we see this picture of you bring an ambition to God, God says no to that, but it ends up being part of something else that he has planned. There's another really good example of this in the New Testament um, with the Apostle Paul. So the book of Romans is one of the most famous and most widely read and influential books in the New Testament. And if you look at the book of Romans, the reason we have the book of Romans is because Paul wanted to visit Spain. And he's writing to the Roman church that he's not familiar with, and he's introducing himself to the Roman church for the purpose of securing their help in taking a missionary trip to Spain. As far as we know, Paul never made it to Spain. So here he has this ambition to go to Spain to preach the gospel in this faraway place where it hasn't yet reached. God frustrates that ambition. Paul ends up in jail. I mean, things don't go well. And what do we get out of it? We get Romans, one of the greatest um, books that's ever been written and just an incredible revelation of God's God's will and his word. There's a saying... um, I've always wanted to be somebody, but I see now I should have been more specific. But actually, most of us have really specific ideas for how our life should go. Right? That doesn't describe us at all. We really we know exactly what, um, what it should, even if we don't know the details, we're like, okay, I want to have accomplished these things. I want to have this kind of career, this kind of family, this kind of friend group. And we don't always get those things, right? Those ambitions don't always work out. But the truth is that sometimes God will call us to a life other than the ones we would have seen for ourselves in order to accomplish a certain purpose. And that's what we see um, with Paul and with David, with these godly ambitions that end up getting redirected. There was a woman named Charlotte who wrote about her struggle with this exact problem recently. And I want to read this quote to you. I thought this was really powerful. She says, She says, Almost every day was a battle to see God's goodness, um, and the reason it was a battle to see God's goodness is because she was really desiring to be married and to have a family. This is this was the her her guiding ambition that just meant so much to her, and so it was a struggle every day. She says, "I battled serious envy when roommates got married, and in my mid to late 30s, I even began to envy the childcare problems and school problems my co-workers had with their children." But with God's help, I realized that the only thing I could count on was God himself. I grew, I think, wisely fearful of settling on anything other than a singularly focused, sold out, proven commitment to God and his purposes. The message that that she's trying to communicate there is a message that um, is captured in one of the sayings that one of my favorite professors in seminary, would constantly repeat. I took a bunch of classes with this guy and he would constantly repeat this saying. So I I heard it so many times from him. He said, God will always give you exactly what you need to glorify him most. So this woman wanted marriage and a family. What could be more innocent than that? And God didn't give it to her. And you could think that this is God denying her ambition and and frustrating her, and that's true if her ambition really is just for marriage and a family. But if what her ambition really is for is for God and for his glory, if that's what she really wants, and she thinks marriage and a family are going to help me to glorify God, then when God redirects that and says, no, I want you to glorify me in this way, that's actually fulfilling her, her real ambition. If our real desire, if our real ambition is to glorify God and to glorify Christ. And even when we turn, are turned away from the specific things that we want, we end up being toward, turned toward the greater ambition. So this leads us back to um, the idea that Christians, to be a Christian is to be incredibly ambitious. Because what are you really, what is the highest goal you can possibly think of to seek? I was sitting in on an uh, intro to, philosophy, to political philosophy class, um, a couple of years ago, and uh, the professor gave a really interesting illustration to open the class to help the students grasp what an um, incredible thing democratic society has done to people's ambitions. He's saying, what's the greatest ambition that you can think of? And people were raising their hands, and, you know, eventually people were saying things that weren't, you know, I'm going to build a business, I'm going to do it. So eventually somebody's like, well, I want to be president. It's like, perfect. That's like, The greatest ambition that most people will cherish in a democratic society. You can be president for eight years. But how great an ambition is that even? I mean, you're constrained on all sides by all sorts of different things. It's a short period of time. Contrast that to wanting to be ruler of the known world, like Caesar, or like, you know, there, there, there there's so many greater ambitions that could be had than that. And, um, and yet that's, that's the, the highest that we generally think. But try to think past that. What is the greatest possible ambition that you could think of? Even if you think, I want everything this world has to offer. I want to be um, like uh, like Nebuchadnezzar, like the the rulers in the Old Testament who their word is law and they rule unchallenged across the whole world that they know. This world is nothing compared to God. You've got to picture God holding the world as a tiny little drop in his hand. It's nothing. And what Christian, to be a Christian isn't, is to want God, to want to know God, to want to be with God, to want nothing less than God himself. To want anything less than that is to be less ambitious. So just to be a Christian is to have an incredible, overwhelming ambition. In fact, Jesus commands us to be ambitious. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the intensity of our love is seen in the fervency of our pursuit. And so if we're loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, then we're ambitious for God's glory, and we're ambitious to bless our neighbors in the same way that we want to see good things come to ourselves. So how do we think about ambition? We should think about it in terms of calling. God calls us first to himself, and that should be our highest ambition. God calls us second to be neighbors and brothers and sisters and fathers and children. And so we should think second about as our, to be ambitious in our relationships, to be the best that we can be in our relationships, to be incredibly ambitious about caring for the person right in front of you and not to let that go in pursuit of some other task that seems like it's going to lead to something that will make you look really good down the road. And then, of course, also we're called to careers, called to a whole variety of careers. And being called to those careers is also part of God's calling on our life, and so we should be ambitious in those things too. But as we take our ambitions, we need to set them before God and see what it's going to look like for us to pursue those things as means for glorifying God and not as means for glorifying ourselves. Um, You can think about part of what happens when you become a Christian, as having, um, well, it's described in Romans 5, having the love of God poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Right? This is how Romans 5 describes part of what it looks like to become a Christian. And you can think about the Holy Spirit in your heart. The Holy Spirit's often described as fire. Think about this as a fire in your heart through which you, which you can pass your ambitions. And no ambition is ever going to go through the fire of the Holy Spirit and come out unchanged, Sometimes what you're going to find when you, and this shouldn't be purely private. I mean, talk to other people, right? Set your ambitions before people who, who know God's will and who, under, who, who can help you to think through um, what His calling on your life and know you. Um, but, and you may find that this isn't something that you're meant to pursue at this time. It might be a perfectly reasonable thing for someone else to do, but maybe it's not for you right now. You might find that this ambition is fantastic and you should absolutely pursue it, but it's going to look a little bit different than you thought it would. Whatever it is that that you are desiring and, and pushing your life toward needs to pass through that refining fire and to become a godly ambition and to make sure it's not a selfish ambition. But if you're hearing all this and thinking, cool, I can do that, then probably don't know yourself all that well because we are selfish people and it's very difficult to see whether we are successfully refining our ambitions. It's very difficult to imagine that we could ever live in a way that's fully about loving God and loving our neighbor. And that leads us back to this very passage about this oath that the Lord swore to David. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also and forever shall sit on your throne. Now think about this psalm. So the psalms were, uh, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but the psalms were collected together in the form that we now have them during the exile. So this is a time when there was not a son of David sitting on the throne in Israel. In fact, Israel was living in very bad conditions in Babylon. They were desperately looking to be restored. And here they have this psalm that they're singing in exile, this promise from God to set someone always on the throne and they're looking and there's no one always on the throne. There's no one on the throne right then. So who is this person who's on the throne? Who is this person, um, the priest that's clothed with salvation? What's the horn that sprouts for David? Who's the anointed? I prepared a lamp for my anointed, but David's dead. Why does this matter to these people in exile? His enemies I was clothed with shame, but on him his crown will shine. On who is this crown shining? It's not on David anymore. He's gone. It's on Christ. It's on the son of David who came to take the throne of David to win back for his people, uh, to win back for God a people for his own possession. So if we think about our ambitions and see... The curvature of our ambitions. The curvature of our ambition should lead us to Christ. I think a good way to think about this um, is in terms of some images from a book by C. S. Lewis. Has anybody read The Space Trilogy by C. S. Lewis? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Got a couple of nods. Okay, so if you haven't read the Space Trilogy, you really should read the Space Trilogy. It's absolutely fantastic. And you, you read that and then you go back to the Chronicles of Narnia and you're like, oh, he actually was trying to write for children in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's very different when he's trying to write for adults. Not the Chronicles of Narnia are bad, but you should read some of his works of fiction that are written for adults. The first book in the Space Trilogy is called Out of the Silent Planet. And I've always thought this, the concept behind this book was just fascinating. The idea is that God has created many worlds. And on all of those worlds, people face, the people created face a choice to either submit themselves to God or to go their own way and turn away from Him, And on all of the many, many hundreds and thousands of worlds that God has created, everyone has chosen to follow God. Why wouldn't it? It's It's a terrible idea not to, except on earth. And so earth is the silent planet that's cut off from the rest of creation because it's turned in on itself, it's barricaded itself. And when, uh, and as part of this book, people travel out into sp- this man travels out into space. And when he gets out into space, it's not at all this dark and cold place that he expects from Earth. It's this place full of light and vibrancy. And it's like he's exited this um, vacuum chamber, cut off from from love and health and and the rest of reality, and entered back into that. And he's sort of, it's 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 an incredible picture. It helps you to really um, think about what it looks like for us to have turned our back on God in a way that is really powerful. And so if we think if that's us, if we're the silent planet, we're a planet full of people who have turned in on ourselves, have cut ourselves off from God. How can we be rescued out of that? How can our ambitions be saved? And the only logical rescue is for God to come within our orbit. Think about Christ's ambition. In Hebrews 12, it says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was ambitious to take our place in punishment for the evils that we've committed and to draw us back into relationship with God, to draw us out of the silent planet and back into the full communion with reality, with the the one who made us that we were designed for. And as we are drawn into that, our desires begin to be purified. Our ambitions can be purified. So think about what you're pursuing. What are we pursuing? What is it? What is the goal of what, what? What are you pursuing in what you're pursuing? What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? We refuse to pursue Christ even though he is worthy. But Christ chose to pursue us even though we are not worthy. And so we should give him our ambitions. We should make him our ambition. So today, even, even as we pray, as we close and, and, and in the rest of the day today, think about your ambitions. Think about all the ambitions that you're aware of, the things that, that are guiding you, that your, your goals. Picture yourself taking those ambitions and holding them in your hands and laying them at the foot of the cross and, and imagine that scene of, of putting them before God and asking, should I pursue this? And if I continue to pursue this or if I go about pursuing this, what should it look like? How can I pursue this in a way that would be about your glory and not about mine? And then find somebody to talk to about it. Don't keep it secret, even if it's grand, even if it's great. There's nothing humble about denying the gifts that you've been given by God. There's nothing humble about setting small goals. To be humble is to depend on God and to recognize that whatever ambitions you have can only be fulfilled with his help, with his strength, in concert with his people. And so it's go to his people and, and tell them what it is that God's laid on your heart and see what it might look like for you to pursue it. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand our own hearts. Help us to see the ambitions that motivate us to lay our ambitions before you. Thank you, Lord, for making us your ambition and for seeking to bring glory to your name by bringing goodness to us. Help us to bring goodness to those around us and in so doing to bring glory to you. Rescue us from selfishness, Lord, and help us to attempt great things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.